Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos. I'm your host. And today I have a very special guest, a new friend of mine, uh, a guy that uh, I'm getting to know very well and uh, a guy who's, who is basically, in my opinion, creating like a whole new um, sector of the watch market. So uh, for with no further ado, I welcome my guest, Asher Rapkin. Thanks. Hey, Asher, how are you? That's an awesome introduction. I appreciate that. There you go. Hopefully, I, uh, I embarrassed you thoroughly. <laughs> no, no, but I, we can we can figure that out in a few more minutes. And when I get to the bottom of this beer, nice, cool, <laughs> man. Well, I got my water here. Um, so, but I truly do believe that. You know, I, I was thinking about our uh, having this conversation with you and and kind of what the idea is. And and I, you know, I like to think th- think about things from kind of a global view. So, like you know, I like to zoom back, uh, especially in the watch world, everybody gets very like granular and they, and it causes people will fight over the stupidest little things. But if you zoom out a lot of times, things are a little bit more normal, but also can be uh, a little bit more different. And I think that um, what you've created and you'll explain it to everybody what that is um, who doesn't know, but what you've created, uh, honestly, I think is a new sector of the watch market. Um, and, and I'll, I'll go further into why I believe it, it is that exactly. Um, but before we do that, we have something that is uh, customary. We, without fail, uh, Jason Main, my buddy who introduced me to you, uh, and I came up with this uh, years ago when we started doing the trading desk uh, on YouTube, and that is the customary risk check. So, why don't you go first? <laughs> Yours is more, more interesting than mine. Well, I mean, I'm 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 talking talking to uh, representative Watchbox, so I I got to bring some heat, right? Uh, so I'm wearing a watch that represents much of what I love about watchmaking in general, as well as somebody who I just admire uh, as a watchmaker and, and an entrepreneur himself. Um, I'm wearing an MBNF LM101 white gold gray dial, which is, uh, and the papers are dated for uh, the day my son was born, actually. Oh my God. Yeah. So. Well, let's just end this now, dude. Like, <laughs> No, but you know what though? It's like a perfect example of, of like the reality of like people who are watch obsessed where you're like, my son was born. Shit. I got to go buy a watch. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I, I think it's important. I mean, I, so I do not have the watch that I was wearing when my daughter was born, but I have another, I have my, my view of owning watches is a little bit different than some other people's too, and maybe possibly different than yours. Um, I kind of, I own them more for the experience of owning the watch, right? So like if I, I own the watch, it was a, it was an Explorer two black dial, the 42 millimeter. I was wearing it when, when she was born, I have this memory. Uh, I also wore it during a photo shoot like a pregnancy photo shoot with my wife beforehand. So I have, you know, I have some um, uh, documentation of me owning this watch, but I I don't feel like I need to just hold this watch because the the memories are not in the watch. The memories are are with me. So I feel that way about the majority of my collection, but I will tell you, I'm not too far away from you. I wore um, by complete happenstance. I was wearing my BLNR when my daughter was born four years ago and I put her name and her birth date on that watch. And then when my son was born, um, I bird dogged my, uh, my, my, my buddy who's a, a Rolex AD and he was very generous to, to get me a BLRO. So, oh. yeah. So, uh, so, uh, his, his, so my son's name and his birth date's on that. So daughter's got the BL, BLNR, he's got the BLRO. They can duke it out later, I suppose. <laughs> no, I like that. And, and honestly, like, so that way of, of collecting it and commemorating things is probably much more normal yeah. in, in my, my opinion where I'm just like, like, I, I, it's funny. I have arguments with my wife about it. Like she, whenever we're out, she wants to take photos of everything and everything. And I go, listen, just, just enjoy the moment. Remember it. And, and, you know, you can just, you can call back that memory and it'll be there. And she's like, well, that's stupid. What if you forget it or whatever? I'm like, okay, fair enough. But, 
that's kind of how I feel about watch collecting. Honestly, there are a few watches that'll probably never the, uh, leave the collection. Um, but most of the, most of the time, like once I get my enjoyment out of it, I'm happy to send it off and yeah. remember that. I have a similar, I have a similar philosophy, largely because I don't have the means to be able to keep everything that I, that I've enjoyed, you know? And there's a lot of watches where, where it hurts on the way out. But, but the truth is that like, I rarely, I rarely like feel the need to own them. And in those, my, in those small instances where, where that happened, I, to be honest, I've rebought the watch and then it sticks. Right. But, um, yeah. but those yeah. two, With those Rolex. two I've made unsellable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, not exactly. I mean, I'm sure, somebody I'm sure someone would buy it way right. more than what you, what you paid for that yeah. watch right now. <laughs> but there's something yeah. like super the way, dark about like buffing your kid's name out of the watch. Like I just, uh, mm, yeah, can't do it. Ugh. Right. Isn't that dark? Yeah. yeah. You just, there you go. There we really kicked right, this right, off cool. on a positive note. <laughs> <laughs> that was, hey, you know what? This is the best intro in mid wrist check, by the way, too, because I haven't even done mine. So, all right, so way less exciting, but um, it's a watch that I I really love, and probably one that it, it'll probably end up moving out of the collection, but it's an easy one to get back. Um, and this is the Blue Dial forty two millimeter um, Omega three hundred SMP. Amen. So uh, this one's on the bracelets, the new Wave Dial ceramic um, forty two millimeter. When I so I own the 40.5 version of this watch. It was one of the first watches that I bought when I started collecting back like 2013, 2014, right? When I got into the industry, I kind of jumped in with both feet and I started buying watches like a maniac. So, um, but I had that watch for years. I ended up trading that towards a Rolex that I wanted, which I don't longer have because I don't have any Rolex in my collection. And this is, this is the way how Rolex, Rolex becomes too liquid. And it just moves. Um, but then uh, I had a chance to pick up one of these. I picked this up earlier in the year. And when I first tried this on at Watchbox, when it was first released, what was it? 2017, mm -hmm. right? So I was still in Philly and we were authorized dealers for Omega. So I tried it on and I'm like, oh, way too big, stupid. Don't like the watch. I, you know, I prefer the original version. Um, so this time around, uh, I disagree with myself. I think it is a, a great size. I think it's very uh, comfortable on the wrist. It's it, it was a little thicker than I would have liked, but for whatever reason, it grew on me. And then the adjustable clasp, um, like the uh, the what the, uh, like the glide lock, the Omega's yeah. version of the glide lock or whatever you want to call it, um, makes it perfect. And uh, I, I think it's an awesome watch. It comes comes with the the rubber strap as well, which I haven't put it on yet. But um, I've been really liking the watch. It's like a it's a forty five hundred dollar watch. It's one of the lower end watches on my collection, and I tend to find myself like really enjoying the lower end of my collection more often. Omega, than Omega does a phenomenal job in that. 4,800 to 7,000 range where it's, it, it's, it's almost unfair, frankly, what they're selling. When you think about like the S and P 300 versus like, a, a, you know, an off the shelf sub, I mean, mm -hmm. tech from a technical standpoint, it is a, we don't have to go into this. Cause like, I'm gonna get everybody all pissed off. And be like, it's, a, get it's a better watch. It's a better watch. Oh, yes. And it's, well, you know, doubt it it's is. a better price. It's a better movement. It, it is better in so many ways other than the non-tapered bracelet personally, but it's yeah. also not a Rolex, right? That. And there's the power of brand. Yeah. Which is by the way, like, let's not, I'm talking to a marketing expert here. Like, let's not discount the, the power of brand. No, I think not it's, at all. It's an important factor, and it definitely is in watches in general. And I and that's part of my thinking of how you've created a new sector in in the watch market. But um, but you yeah, know, I think it's it's fantastic. It'll it'll probably stay in the collection for some time. But oh, I wanted to add something. You said up to seven thousand. I would say under fifteen thousand. Sure, yeah. If you, if you look at like the dark sides, 
Yeah, I think we even talked about this. I would argue that like the dark side watch is like the finishing on that watch is the best you can get in ceramic until you get to AP. Yeah, I I would agree 100%. Yeah. Um, And and AP, and and we're talking a pretty significant price differential. Well, put it this way. uh, I recently sold a uh, a ceramic AP perpetual in black for like a little over $300,000. So um, there's a big big gap in between the price points there. Yeah. Especially when you consider what you you can get for a dark side of the moon. You're making me feel like I need to get another dark side, but that's a separate issue. Yeah. Well, I I went to the boutique with my wife uh, here in Boca Raton like uh, a a few months ago and I went and tried it on. She's like, you should get that. And that's, that's, I mean, listen, not often does a wife look at a $12,000 watch and say, you should get that. You know, not that I'm going to pay twelve thousand to buy a pre-owned watch box for Wayless. Yeah. Well, you got to get her on board, man. Hopefully you're buying your, your wife watches. What I like to do is. I like to buy watches for my wife, for me. So watches that we can both wear. Hey, look, look what I got you. You know, here's, here's the new, uh, uh, Cartier, uh, uh, the Cartier, uh, Santos large. Yeah. I feel like my wife supports my business. I, I truly think she could care less what we're making. <laughs> okay. right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day, exactly. or maybe it's best actually. You don't want to. That's the other thing. I sometimes my wife starts so will send me like an Instagram video of like a Rolex president and uh, and like, oh, this is nice. And I go, yeah, I know it's nice. It's also very expensive. So let's change the subject. Here. Good taste. <laughs> Great taste. Yeah, exactly. But um, all right. So um, wrist checks are done. You blew me out the water. <laughs> you have max uh, 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 something for Max Booster. Which, by the way, guys, um, if you haven't listened to Tim Masso's interview with max booster you're missing out that i listened to that probably 10 times it is well first of all tim's tim masso's podcast is just infinitely better than mine so i'll say this if you haven't listened to tim masso's podcast you need to um but he did an amazing interview with max booster who who is one of the most honest watch ceos and and watch owners uh, watch brand owners that i've ever heard of he talks about you know the ups and downs and and the business side of things which is very interesting to me um as well as you know me being not only in the business of watches, but I'm also an entrepreneur as well. We have other businesses. So I'm always interested to hear about those things. Um, and that's a good lead into kind of what our the topic of our conversation is going to be today, right? So, so Asher, I met you because I bought a watch that I guess you designed, right? Um, or you, you collaborated had, on, yeah. You collaborated on with uh, with Moser, and that's um, through a company that you started called Collective Horology, yeah. yeah? And and it gives me it gives me exceeding pleasure to to get to sell to someone in the industry to, in all honesty, but uh, but yeah in, in brief um, uh, my partner Gabe and I founded a Collective in 2018, and uh, both he and I uh, you know we we grew up together we met each other literally in the principal's office in seventh grade and that's that's the God's honest truth, and uh, we've you know we become friends and stayed friends for 25 plus years uh, we've worked in the same industry Gabe works on advertising I work in marketing, and you know, we, we've had shared obsessions, you know, we, we've been obsessed with jam bands growing up together. You know, we've, (laughs) there's half your listenership. Uh, and we, uh, we, we also have been obsessed with watches, um, you know, just as, as consumers and then, and then from a business standpoint to be sure. And a few years ago, about five or six years ago, we started designing watches for, uh, just, you know, other guys, uh, who, who worked with us at our company, making some pieces inside the company for the fun of it. And over time, what we started to realize is uh, it, it was a it, it was kind of a calling card. It was it was this interesting thing where it's you know, and this is true about any watch. I would argue, you know, if you're like a hardcore FP Jordan fan, if you're an MBNF guy, you know, it's like when you see somebody with that watch, it's, you you realize you have a shared experience. You know, you, you you're connecting with them in one way or another. 
And that was certainly true when that watch was made for the specific affinity group that, that we were part of. And we thought, well, this is really interesting because this, this holds together a community and wouldn't it be interesting if we just started something, which we didn't intend to start a business, to be honest. It, it, it evolved into that, but we originally were, you know, thought, Hey, we, you know, if we can bring together some, some folks that we know and we can take our approach to the way that we, that we build marketing and advertising, which is to say, come up with a creative brief, identify the concept and then, and then work to deliver something that embodies that idea. Uh, maybe we got something and, um, somehow <laughs> managed to convince Zenith to do it with us. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I say this before and I will continue to say it again, that the, the guy who ran Zenith North America at the time was a gentleman named Terry Colo, who is a, a genuine hero and an amazing human being who believed in us and supported us and helped us put out our first piece. And since then, um, we've released a number of collaborations that are all for our members. And what a member of collective is, is somebody who, um, shares their passion with us about being a watch collector. They apply. It's a short application. They tell us about who they are. I'm not looking for anything. Um, we're not looking for like size of collection, value of collection, any of that. We just want to see passion. And uh, as a member of Collective, you have access to the watches that we design. And um, our first watch was Zenith. Second uh, was with uh, uh, now our friend Josh Shapiro, who's an American watchmaker out of uh, Los Angeles, an amazing talent. Our third is is the one that you that you picked up from us um, pre-owned, which is uh, with H Moser and Chi. Uh, our fourth was uh, just this past year in July, which was with um, a company that I absolutely idolize and am still pinching myself from, which is Urwork. And uh, our most recent release was with IWC back in October. Wow! So a very diverse. So well, that was, yeah, big time. Which is I think is very appealing as well. Yeah. And uh, so. So there's a lot to unpack here, right? So uh, you're a watch guy. Uh, you're from California. No, originally. I'm from New York City, man. I grew up in Manhattan. Oh, I grew up on the Upper oh, West wow. Side. Gabe grew up on the Upper East Side. Nice. Okay. And then, so tech brought you to California. My wife brought me to California. <laughs> oh, even yeah. Better. So before I, before better. I was in tech, so I actually went to school for theater. Like I didn't I didn't go to school for any of this stuff. I thought I thought I was going to be. I went to school for theater, and I was a musician, and I studied East Asian history. And when I graduated from college, I wanted to uh, I wanted to either uh, direct theater or I wanted to work in in live music production. And um, I tried both. Uh, I was actually I was actually a roadie for a period. I was a roadie for Alicia Keys. And um, wow. that, you know, uh, that proved to me very rapidly. <laughs> no judgment on her. She's a cool person. But like, I, I do not want that job. <laughs> And uh, and then I tried doing theater. Is and, and you know, I, I, a roadie? is that a career oh, being a yeah, roadie, or is that a job? Do that for their entire that's life, like, it's a, it's a thing, man. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a whole other conversation. But um, but yeah, yeah. And then I got into television, and I worked in TV for for about ten years um, before I got into tech. And uh, I met my wife, who's from Southern California, and you know, she made it very clear that uh, if this is going to work, it's going to work in Southern California. I was like, okay. <laughs> Plenty of worst cases, right? Or worst places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, especially today. I mean, well, so I'm sitting in Boca Raton. You're sitting in Southern mm -hmm. California. The rest of the entire country, most of our listeners are <laughs> in, yeah, in snowpocalypse totally. right now, including uh, all my coworkers in Philadelphia and my buddy Jason Maine, who's uh, currently packing up his house because he's moving back down to Florida. He'll be here, I think, next week or two weeks he's from now. Man. So Philly's. 
oh yeah, well, I mean, it only took them five years. It took me two years. <laughs> yeah. To to realize that Philadelphia wasn't. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, mean, like, I, I do miss New York City. Like I love New York. Um, but uh, and it kills me that I haven't been able to be there more than like for twelve hours in the last two years. But uh, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's fifty nine degrees right now, and I'm like cold. <laughs> oh yeah. Well. You can see me. I'm wearing a sweater, and it was, it, yeah, it was like it, it was in the low 60s. It's more, if it gets below 70, I get kind of, I get. But you know what? What this has allowed us to do is, uh, is collective headquarters is now here um, in Ventura County. Um, my partner lives, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lives about five miles away from me, or ten miles away from me as crow flies, and uh, you know our office is based down here. So we've been able to to really find a good home here, and and I'm, I'm grateful. It's it's a it's a good place to run a business. Well, that's amazing. So okay, so let's let's talk about that, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, you have an idea. Uh, so you started off designing watches for another watch group. You just, you collaborate with your, your partner now partner here and you decide, Hey, th- we have a business idea and let's just bring this to Zenith. Like how, no, how does this, no, it, it, was, this it didn't develop? start that way. I mean, I, I think, and this is the weird thing about when, when a passion or a, or, or a hobby turns into a career, right? It, it's, it, it, it doesn't, I think it, for some people, it happens, you know, like that. And, and they're like, oh, hell, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go work at a watch store. I'm going to try to apply to watch brands or become a watchmaker. You know, that's what happened to Josh. You know, Josh Shapiro, is, right. he's a, he's a school teacher by training. And he, and he just decided he wanted to make watches. God bless him. And he did it. Um, so everybody has their own journey with it. I think for us, what happened was a couple of things. I mean, one, we realized how much work it is. I mean, the truth is building, building a collaboration that you're really proud of with, with, you know, something that you want to bring to market, it's, it's really hard. It takes a long time. I mean, there's the production reality of it, right? Which is like to make any of these things takes a long time, but designing it, getting it right. I mean, I don't think people always necessarily realize that to go into this, it's not like you shoot an email to, you know, to a brand. You're like, here's the whole like complete concept. Send me the render, like, tell me where to sign. Let's go. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of it that's tied in, in, into, spent, you know, being awake at five in the morning to talk to, you know, someone based in Geneva for an hour and a half to do a creative review, you know, um, and everything else that goes into, that goes into launching a watch, the marketing plan, buying the media, planning it, you know, thinking that all through. Um, I, I love it. I mean, it's something that I've been doing, you know, for the last 20 years, but, but it's not easy. And I think over time, what we began to realize is like, if we're going to do this, the first transition was, well, we have to make it self-sufficient. You know, like we have to be like, we can't be spending our family's money, like, you know, buying, paying proto, buying prototypes and like flying to, you know, wherever to meet with whoever to, to, to make these things happen. And then from there, we began to realize, well, part of the reason why businesses are businesses are to be able to create the resources to do the thing that you really want to do. And I feel like if you're an entrepreneur, you know, or you're starting your own thing and both of my parents have their own businesses in completely different spaces, you know, a lot of it is like, well, it, it, it's about resources. It's about being able to like say, okay, I'm willing to like put my money where my mouth is and help pay for this or help for the production or, or pay for the marketing or, you know, all of the minutia that goes into the reality of, of bringing these things to market in a way that feels seamless. And I think that, and, and around somewhere between Shapiro and um, Moser is I think when we had that click and it's like, we have, you know, are we going to do this like for real? Or is this going to be a hobby? And and both Gabe and I, without a second, we were just, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna we're gonna figure out a way to make this work. Full on. Gotcha. Cool. So you didn't answer my question. So how does 
how does it how do you start that was great but so how does it go from an idea to now we're talking to the president well i think part of okay so the, the truth is um the majority of people like most conversations that we have with brands are really nice to meet you it's not going to work and and that and honestly like i really respect that because the truth is you know it's a lot of, like i said it's a lot of work to do this i mean I, you're not going to make an Omega, I don't think. Well, I think part of it is – okay, let's talk about Omega for a second. And, and in full transparency, I've never approached Omega, and I would love to. But I, I think yeah. with Omega, it's like there's a certain amount of watches that have to be made for them to be able mm -hmm. to disrupt their production process in order to make that watch. And there's more calculus than just the revenue from the growth – from like the bulk sales of that watch that goes into it, Right. Because if it was just a bulk order and, and collective was all about like, hey, take the blue and make it red. Like my job here is done. We'll move on. Might be able to do more. But I, to me, like that's an uninteresting project and I, I don't want to do it. If you go to Omega and Gabe and I have plenty of ideas about what we would want to do with Omega. But if you go to Omega and you say like, look, this is what I want to do. It has to make sense for them uh, in a much larger way and, and to make a dent in a brand. I don't know how many watches Omega makes a year, but I have to imagine somewhere between half a million to, to 750,000, if not more, you know, to make a dent in that and make them pay attention. It either has to be such a significant marketing moment that it does some sort of a heavy lift for them that wouldn't have happened before or a watch that they simply must make. Um Right. And I don't know that we have either of those there. And I think that's true for a lot of other brands. So for Zenith, I think what, what clicked was the idea was was one that I think resonated with Roman Marietta, who's who's their absolutely just incredible head of design. I think Terry saw and uh, saw further down the line than I think Gabe and I did about what the potential was. And the truth is, we rolled the dice, and they did too. And I think mm -hmm. that it was like Zenith was at was at a point. I mean, Zenith is doing incredibly now, but you know there was a point. Three years ago, right, where Zenith was a brand that everybody respected, but it, like it wasn't, it wasn't like on fire, you know, in the way that I think watch nerds knew them for their yeah. movements. But yeah. yeah, well, I think it's Jean Claude Biver that had a, a big impact 100%. on on changing yeah. their. They took the Defy that was literally like the junk of all junk. Like you look at the old Defies, like realistically, all right. So we're a Zenith dealer yeah. right now. I can sell you a new Zenith if you want it, um, and I'll be totally honest. The the old Defy Extremes, I was just offered one and we're just not interested in buying it. Like that's and and if you look at the history of the brand, that watch almost bankrupted them. So they took their worst model ever. And now it's like, I mean, our my buddy Jason Main just yep. bought one. Um, the Defy is the best brand ever. So that's that is that could be a whole other show about well, that, how to turn that, around. I, honestly, I think a bad. lot of that sits with their CEO for Julian has done an amazing sure. job. And I think also with Roman, who has embodied mm -hmm. to my in my mind. He's, he's one of the watch designers out there who is willing to take significant creative risk within the within the vernacular of their brand. Another guy like that is Christian Knup at IWC, who I think, you know, in IWC to a degree is even harder in, in some ways than, than Zenith because it's like an even narrower path you have to walk in terms of what like what the voice of that brand is. And yet Christian keeps finding right. ways to like juice that brand i mean the the uh the the piece that they did the experimental big pilot is a perfect example of that where it's totally in the vernacular of the brand but absolutely on a whole other planet in terms of design you could say the exact same things about like you know the philippe pantone um limited edition uh defy 21 which is you know or, or any of those the sapphire defy 21s or hell even the new defy re-release of the bank vault a couple days ago you know these are risks that mm -hmm. that are calculated but they are risks and they've done a really good job of, of doing that. So I would argue that 
we were lucky to be able to uncover a brand that had a guy like Roman, you know, who, who saw risk as opportunity, not risk as a threat because other brands that we approached were like, yeah, come talk to us again in three years. And if you're still around, we'll see what happens. And they weren't being jerks about it. It was just like, I don't know, man, you've never done anything before. So respectfully, no. Yeah. Go prove yourself first and then come back. As opposed to we're not going to take a chance on you. Well, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, I think that, totally. well, you can see, well, so on my side of things, I can see there's an uptick in, so the way we're, we're, we judge, the way I judge the popularity of a brand is the, is the resale value of their watches. In my opinion, there is really no other better way to do it, right? This is just, you know, especially coming from mm-hmm. the field, right? So um, if, they're, if they're selling watches and their watches are selling for half of their retail price on the open market, then that that's an indictment of of what they're making. They're not making relevant watches. They're making too many of them, whatever. I don't know. Right? I don't know if I buy so, into that, honestly. But I, you could okay, certainly sure. disagree. That's fine. But again, this and, and believe me, there's there's absolute arguments against what I'm saying. But in in total, I, that's how, from a dealer perspective, that's how you're going to. Sure, sure. That's, that's absolutely. A judge absolutely. From that perspective, for right. sure. Yeah, it's not absolute though, for sure though. Like there's, there's definitely exceptions and whatnot there. But um, so Zenith, uh, for my entire time in the industry up until recently at IWC, the same thing, right there, most of their references were kind of cool watches. They, they, you know, they had, there was respect in some aspects of what they were making, but the resale value for everyone across the board was in the toilet for one mm-hmm. reason or the other. Right. And I'm saying, obviously there's a, there's an uptick in demand across the board with everything, right. We've seen an explosion of new buyers into our market. So that mm-hmm. helps everybody, but it's funny because I'm just thinking while you're talking, both IWC and Zenith have done have taken risks recently, right? And they're both yeah. paying off. Um, yeah, the, the new the new um, 43 millimeter big pilot, which by the way, I've been I'm on camera for years saying make this watch in 42 millimeters. 43 is a great compromise. I tried it on at my local boutique over here. I really love the watch. I'm probably going to pick up one pre-owned, and it's going to be. At a very small discount from the the retail, because again, the they're they're giving people what they want and it's reasonable, right? And Zenith is the yeah. same thing. That Defy, it's compl- I mean, well, they're they're new. The new what is it? The Chronosport, the uh, the <laughs> the Zeltona or the Zaytona. Um, it does crack again, me up by know, the way how people are like that's such a ripoff of the <laughs> of a Daytona, and you're like, bro, you know what powered the Daytona for decades, right? <laughs> Right. Exactly. Like, <laughs> Which by the way, used to be people you would, would be like, Oh, it has, it's, it's a Zenith movement. Yeah. It's worth less than the Rolex movement. Now people are like, give me the Zenith movement. Let me get well, it. you know, but so, so this is, this is the challenge with like the secondary, right. And, and it took me a while to get the confidence to move on from it, which is if, if you interpret the watch world through the lens of value and you can, and I'm, I'm picking a fight with you here a little bit. But if you if you interpret the watch world through the lens of value, I argue that you are that you are smothering it to death because what you're doing is you are disincentivizing watchmakers and buyers from taking risk when it comes to something that falls outside of the of the, you know, financially secure. So if that happens, what we're doing is we're creating a world of AP paddock and Rolex buyers exclusively, you know, and then murdering the independents. And I'm not talking about like Jorn, you know, or like established independents, but I mean, like 
the guy who's literally starting his own watch company, right? I'll tell you. So like there's a watchmaker I really admire. I just commissioned a watch room named James Lamb out of, out of England. This guy is doing incredible work. He's making um, beautiful watches, but one of the signature elements of them is that it's a 38 millimeter handmade, handmade uh, 925 silver case. And, I, and, and just so people have an idea of what I'm talking about there. I mean, he's literally taking a silver ingot putting like using a lathe and a hammer to make a full case out of that. That watch is 9,000 or 10,000 pounds. Now, what is the resale value of a James Lamb watch? I have absolutely no idea. Nothing? Maybe? I don't know. 10,000? Who knows? That's not the value of it. But if, but if we can, but so we have to like get people, I think, to a place where we think about some watches having, having, you know, market value and some watches are, are patronage, but that doesn't mean that, that spending your money on patronage is a bad investment. Garrick is a, so, okay. So you're holding up a Garrick, right? Garrick is a phenomenal example of this. You know, when I met those guys, you know, they were, they, they were making incredible, I mean, they've been making incredible watches for years and they've been helping other people mm-hmm. make incredible watches for years. But the reality is they were a watch made in England. And a lot of people were just like, I don't want an English watch. That's not cool. Right. I disagree. I think some of the most interesting stuff happening in horology right now is happening in England, but you as an owner of that watch made a decision to say, buy however many pounds I just paid. But the thing is, you are supporting you're supporting the guys who are behind that brand. But more importantly, you're supporting the watchmaker who's assembling that watch, who's got a sketch in his mind about what his watch is going to look like. And that dude is going to be incentivized now to make a watch because he knows that there's dudes like you out there. They're going to buy them. But if all we ever do mm-hmm. is like crap on watches because they don't hold their value, we've smothered that guy's dream. He's going to go off. He's going to start open a restaurant and say, you know, fuck this. I don't want to be in the watch world. I'll get off my soapbox, but like, this is, this is like the thing. It's okay to like talk about the value of watches. Like, sure. I love it when a watch that I own is worth more than I paid for it. That's great. That's great for anything. That's great for my Subaru. You know what I mean? But like, exactly. I think we, I think if, I think if we're going to think about ourselves as like supporters of the independent or supporters of the watch world in general, we have to think about Mm -hmm. not every dollar can come back to you, but that doesn't mean that that dollar won't come back to you in a different kind of value. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. It, so I, I would, I would put it like this, right? So I agree with you that um, if we only focus on market price and that stifles out creativity and risk-taking, then it's yeah. a disservice, right? But it's also not a zero sum game. It's not like, all right, only the only, the only thing that holds value are Rolex, AP yeah. and Paddock, right? Um, uh, so, I mean, so I showed you the Garrick, right? But realistically, so mm-hmm. my Panerai, right? This is my Pam 233. I have, now I only have four Panerais in my collection. Every single one of them is worth less than I paid. It means mm-hmm. nothing to me. I, I, I mean, is it worth nothing? No. If I bought this and, and I knew it was going to be worth zero, where like if I needed to sell it, I couldn't get a dollar for it, it would probably make me feel slightly different about it. But realistically, I have no intention, intention to, to selling this. I think that there, there needs to be some cross section between um, value of things, right? Because, because otherwise, so I like to look at it differently than resale value as opposed to um, overpaying for things, right? Sure. So nobody wants to overpay for anything. I don't, I don't care that 
what I'm buying is worth more than what I'm I'm paying for it, right? But I don't want it to be worth so far less that I'm a sucker for buying this. Yeah, that well, that's sense? that's the like that's that's kind of the opposite. <laughs> this is so right. I, this is a brand that I actually admire, believe it or not. Sure, but um, but this is what I refer to as the Hublot effect, which is that I I yeah. think that Hublot is it's like a it's like a a game of chicken with watch collectors. Because the thing is, like, they're not targeting watch collectors. Like, they really—I mean, maybe a little bit, but not really. But, but for watch collectors who more now than before, big part, yes. more now than they sure. Were five but it's years still ago. a game of chicken yeah. because, like, let's talk. Like, oh, yes. okay, so like a Hublot that I genuinely love and am interested in is the is the uh, um, the thank you the concrete uh, was it concrete the, uh, jungle. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a watch yeah. literally made out of concrete, and I, and the thing that and for me where Hublot gets interesting is around material innovation. They do take some really fascinating risks with that, and I find that really cool. But that watch is nineteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars, you know. And it's it's one of these things where I'm like, to me, it's a game of chicken where they're like, "Hey, watch guy, I know you know that this is not in any realm of rational thinking remotely worth nineteen thousand dollars." And I realize I'm talking myself now out of any potential partnership with you blow <laughs> which i who i would love to work with but the truth is like it's just not intrinsically worth that but from a creative standpoint aesthetically it is fucking amazing and i yeah. think so it's that game of chicken where it's like i know you know it's not worth it but i also know that you're attracted mm-hmm. to the aesthetic and the vibe and the creative concept all of which are 10 out of 10 but the value is like right. 3 out of 10 so what are you going to do, man? Yes. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, 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 <laughs> and it's, and, and I've, I've faced that down multiple times, right? Like I've almost bought oh, yeah. this the poor guy who I've spoken to at, at, at the Hublot store, I think has like offered me an Orlinsky. It's another watch that I love very much by them, which is a very distinct, really yeah. beautiful watch multiple very times. Distinct, and like, yeah. I just oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. But it's tough, but I respect that it exists. And I think, um, you know, and the funny thing is, like, residual value isn't isn't at, at play there. It's just value, <laughs> right? And, and that's so that's that's how I look at it, right? So, um, yeah, it's it's not so much because I get, I get the guys, and you and I have talked about this before. Whereas, you know, all of a sudden, uh, I have guys who would have never paid retail for a watch before now are demanding watches for retail. It's like, well, hold on, you I won't pay a cent over the full price. Off. <laughs> Right, exactly. So, but this is the same guy that used to harass us and say, "Well, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to buy that Rolex for less than twenty percent off, or for more than twenty percent off, right, or less, I guess." So, so you, because he, they realized that there was a market value for this, and the twenty percent discount on, say, the Rolex um, uh, president at that point would put you near closer to the uh, to the market price yeah. of that watch. But now the market price is quadruple the retail price. But no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not paying a cent yeah. over. So that's a different. It, it is. Thing it's, a, it's a different market trend saying, for sure. And, and, and I, I don't know, man. I. But it's a different thought process than saying um, I'm not going to pay full price for an Hublot right now because it's not that it's the, the watch itself is just not worth that money right now. Though they have made leaps and bounds quietly, they don't talk about it. But they, I mean, their Unico oh, movements yeah. are are. Totally legit movements. I really like them. I like the 42 Unico. I think it's fantastic. The 44s are nice also. Um, and they have they make them in every different style. One thing that I was, again, so we're an Hublot dealer. I was told this by an ex-Hublot watchmaker. I don't, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say I don't think this is the case any longer. But at one point, 
if they made it a limited edition, mm-hmm. say they made 10 of a certain watch, right? And then somebody came along and said, hey, I like that watch. Sorry. And then they said, oh, they're, they're all sold out. She so was like, okay, well, I'll order another 10 of them. And so they'll they'll make another 10 of a limited or special edition and just be – so the first one was one of 10, two of 10. That was the first run. They, the second run will be zero one of 10, zero two of 10. So they would do things like that, right, that were just like – I mean, okay. that's so. All right, that's. I, like, I'm feeling a little bad now, so let's let's reverse the tables. Let's no, no, because this, this is this is this is an interesting like push and pull between like Asher the collector and like Asher, you know, who 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 is selling watches. Um, this yeah. person, right? Because the flip side of this is, I do think that people have this like, or, or some people have this misconception about how much money there is to be made in watches. You know, and, and don't get me wrong, like I know there are like there's like the performative watch dealers, you know what I mean? Which are like trying to convince you that somehow you can go from like zero to billionaire and whatever. And like that's, that's like its own thing. And I, I think that's more entered. Yeah, all exactly. Well, that's the thing. I think it's more entertainment than it is, than it is business. Um, right. Rented Ferraris. Yeah. And, and, and then there's like, I can tell you as somebody who, who does it, the reality of, of selling watches, because one thing that we have like as a principle in selling watches, a collective, I mean, we do like, full transparency like we make money when we sell watches at collective we get paid for the you know for for the process but we we never we always think about it in a in a context of like a three circle venn diagram which is in order for this to to work for a project to work it has to make creative and financial sense for for collective for the brand and for our for our customers and if it's ever like too much in one way like if it's financially beneficial for me and financially beneficial for the brand, but it's like putting all of that on top of my members, I'm not going to do it. So what that means is like, if I wanted a bigger margin, any brand would say, sure, man, no problem. Just tack it on to the MSRP. But like, I'm not going to do that. But the reality is when you look at, pardon me. (laughs) So the reality is, (laughs) so the reality is when you take that, um, when you look at the actual numbers and you talk about OPEX, so like your operating expenses, you talk about the cost of marketing, the cost of doing business, the cost of holding insurance, your space, shipping, good Lord, like all of these credit card processing, all of these things all together, um, the, the numbers are big, but the margins are not huge. Exactly. And I think, yeah. so there's a part of me that's like, okay, going back to me now, you know, with the Hublot thing, it's like, $19,000. There's a lot of people who are taking a chunk of that 19K along the path before it makes its way back to LVMH. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to say like, you know, everybody needs to like pour, you know, spill out, you know, a little bit of their beer for like LVMH because like, let's all help someone in need. Like that's not an issue, but. For the richest man on the planet, by the way. <laughs> but in in fairness, you know, it, it is still an operating business and there are costs associated with the marketing, the sponsorships, the, the production, the, 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 the material research and innovation is not free, you know, and all of those things do go into it. Whether or not you, you value that is a separate question, but it is there. So, you know, it is interesting when I, when I think about, like, I've actually like largely stopped negotiating on prices when I buy a new watch. You know, which doesn't, you know, sometimes I, I still get a break from a friend or something like that. But like if I'm going, you know, but like I, I buy my longer from the boutique at full price, you know, and <laughs> just give you a heart attack. But the, but the thing is, like, I actually really love that brand and I'm, I'm happy to support them. And I, and I actually do think that they're worth what they're asking, even if the market hasn't caught up to my opinion on that yet. But I do think that, I really do think 
that an annual count, like an 1815 annual calendar at $48,000 with the level of finishing and design is worth it relative to the competitive set and making less than 5,000 watches. I think they made less than 4,000 last year, you know, Right. That money is meaningful, and that money does pay the salaries of legitimately, high, of legitimately special watchmakers, who who will go on and yeah. do amazing things at Longa or anywhere else. So you know, I, right? I, I understand the like want to grind on price because these things are expensive, you know. And every dollar that you don't sure. spend, you keep in your pocket. But I guess I, I just I want to get to a place for myself where I've, I'm adjusting my point of view on some of this stuff especially with a brand like Longa for example, mm-hmm. or MBNF for that matter. It's like the money that you yeah, are yeah. taking out of your pocket, you are putting into actual watchmakers hands. And, and, and in doing so you mm-hmm. are keeping an industry, which is actually in pretty serious crisis right now in terms of, in terms of legitimate available watchmaking talent. And you're incentivizing people to yeah. rejoin that industry. I don't think people realize that yeah, like big shortage. half the reason why, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, in, why, why there's not a lot of, of watches being produced right now, but like there's a lot of companies that would scale if there was the talent available for them to hire. And there isn't, mm-hmm. you know, take yeah. COVID out of it. There's been a watch, right. There's been a watchmaker shortage since, well, so I, I got in the industry 2012, 2013. And back then there was that, that was Peter a conversation. Peter has talked a lot about shortage. this. And I, like, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but mm-hmm. like, have you, have you ever read this? Like no. he's done a lot of work. I mean, that's the whole idea of a it, naked no. watchmaker, you know, to like really, really get into it and, and bring light to this fact and encourage people to join, uh, to join the space. I mean, that's why we're sponsors at collective of the horological society of New York. You know, they, the money that we donate to the HSNY goes directly into watchmakers pockets to encourage them to, to stick with it. I mean, that's a really meaningful thing. Why? I think it's very, very important. And, and again, so let's yeah. let's parse this though. What you're talking about is buying watches prime, through yeah. primary sources, right? Because when you buy a watch from me, the watch is not going into a watchmaker's. Well, I mean, we do have watchmakers on staff, but there's don't don't believe that if you're if you're buying a watch from me at Watchbox, that that is somehow you know funding. No, but some depending on what school, watch they watch. buy from you at Watchbox, it does have a halo effect, I think, on encouraging people to take risk, which goes back to that original point, right? Like the guy who was buying Debitune from you for 20 cents on the dollar three years ago are the people who ultimately created the market environment where we are now with Debitune out of control. But right. that business deserved arguably to survive. The work is incredible. The watches are, oh, yeah. in, are 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 unlike anything else. And the market coming up on them, I have to imagine, on the secondary market is probably what drove their ability to start actually, you know, fulfilling orders and getting what they were asking for the watches that deserved them, even though they were they were maligned years prior. And that kept Yeah. Same thing oh, with yeah. by the way. Yeah. Which is a brand that I've from the very so I it must have been 2013, 2014. I bought from a collector who has since passed away. It was really sad. It was a it was a became a good friend of mine. I bought from him. Uh, it was an early prototype from Urwork. I think I can Google it, but it was I forgot the the reference, but it was uh, referred to as the scratch <laughs> magnet. It was because it had the the, yeah. the floating hours, but it was full polished mm-hmm. white gold. Um, and I wonder where that watch is these days. I, I can't imagine buffed. what it's worth at this point, but I think, <laughs> wow. I want to say we bought it for 15 or 16,000 and yeah. sold it for 20 grand. Like that's, that's where that watch, and by the way, like in today's market, 
I, I can't even imagine what something like that is worth. Where 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 things are and and again, I, and I just want to say this because people feel like watches are overpriced now, and there certainly are, right? So like a a, a blue dial steel Nautilus with the um, sleeve and uh, a pin and sleeve bracelet is probably the worst hundred thirty thousand dollar watch you can buy. If you paid that, it, it's because you wanted to and you can afford it. That good on you, but. There I'm, I'm going to actually push that further and say that are, I'm not even sure it's worth MSRP. Fair enough, right? That, that, and that's I, I, like, I own Paddock. That's, that's I, I like Paddock. I don't think that watch is even remotely mm-hmm. worth it. Yeah, yeah, there's 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 a lot of criticism of the watch, but uh, regardless of that, the there are many watches that are now now that are trading double what they used to trade, and they're still not quite, in my opinion worth oh, what they should be. Uh, yes. Um, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I, Urwerk is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, I uh, yeah. when when we started working, I mean, I've always, I, I've been on a long journey with that brand, which is, I remember the first time I ever saw an Urwerk was a decade ago. And I will readily admit, like, I did not, I couldn't, I didn't get it. It's like, I just, it didn't, you know, it didn't make any sense to me. And over the last decade, I went from like, oh, it doesn't make sense to me. Like every time I heard there was a new Urwerk, I'm like reloading the page to figure it out. And I'm like, this is amazing, you know? And I remember when the UR100 was announced two or three years ago now, I think it was like 2019, being so excited because here was the first time that an Urwerk was like potentially within reach, you know? I think the first editions were like $50,000 on the nose. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it's an insane amount of money, but it's like, it's like that is so much more in- attainable. Pers- like, you know, like you can look at your collection and be like, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, and I'm almost there. You know what I mean? Uh, instead of, yeah, exactly. um, yep. you know, looking at something for 150000 which just is like out of out of my league. And, yeah. um, right. Cost more than my first, you know, yeah, uh, home purchase. Totally. <laughs> and I, I remember yeah. when we approached Urwerk. And then we started working with them. It's like, I went from, I greatly admire the work that you do to I'm madly in love with this company. And it reminded me of when I graduated from college and I said, I went to school for theater. The last, the last class that I had in the last directing class, the professor told me, and I remember being really pissed off me. Like, why is he telling us this? He's like, if there's anything else in the world that you can do other than theater, you should go do it. Because there's other people out there who who can't think of doing anything else and they're going to eat your lunch. Yeah. And when I think about guys like Martin and Felix, I think that there is nothing in the world that those two men, you know, would want to do other than what they're doing. I mean, like Martin in particular, we literally had to tell him to stop working after we had launched the project because he could not stop coming up with new ideas. And... It, it's what makes him so magical, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, like, it's funny. It's like the aggregate got announced, the new UR 112. It's a $275,000 watch, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it is a horological marvel, but people were like, $275,000, really crazy. And you have to sit back and be like, I don't, you got to take a minute and appreciate the incredible, like, just confidence to release something like that not just in your the belief that what you're doing is the is the right thing and, and interesting and you have something unique to say, but that you're going to put a truly significant amount of your own money into building, prototyping, and ordering. I don't think people understand like if you're going to order 25 parts of something from from a, a Swiss manufacturer, like a supplier, like you are so far mm-hmm. at the bottom of the list of, of priorities 
and the cost is so high. Mm-hmm. It's not like ordering, you know, 10,000 cases from your case supplier, you know? No, the opposite of that. <laughs> Literally. <actually. laughs> yeah. yeah. You're all in, which, which is, it's, 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 yeah. So what, what you're you buying are. when you pay 200 and some odd thousand dollars for that artwork is, you, I mean, like, I can, I can, like, Martin, I feel like they're not getting rich off that. You know what I mean? Right. No, they're not buying man. a Lambo with every But what, every what they're doing thing. though is that they're they are making enough to support themselves and there's like – and they're hoping and praying, which there are now, thank God, based on 20 years of their work, that there's 25 people out there who are going to say, mm-hmm. damn, that's amazing, somewhere in the world and, and put down the price of a house in Ohio to buy that watch. And, and what you're doing – is you're telling the the create like the world and the market and 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 those two guys don't stop, right? And the guy right. who's behind him, who's been prototyping and designing some crazy watch that nobody's ever seen before, that he's terrified to to do because he's gonna have to liquidate everything he owns to make the damn thing. Now thinks that he might be able to do it, and that's gonna be the guy or the woman who's gonna come out from behind and make something that's gonna blow your mind. Right. So whoever is buying that 112, bless you, because what you're doing is like, you know, it's a gift. It's a gift to collectors everywhere. And that was absolutely <laughs> beautiful. And here, let me just ask your dream. So as soon as that watch is purchased, you will curse the first person no, that throws I, it up on. I, I won't. I won't actually because and here's the other side of it. <laughs> I don't have a problem. And, and this is something that like I feel very strongly about. I. As a collector, I'd say 70% of my collection is in constant motion. And I used to feel really ashamed about that. And I had to hide it because I felt like people would judge me. Like, you know, how dare you buy a watch and you just had that for four months and you sold it? What was wrong? It's it's like it's like the messages that you get on Rolex forums. You're like, hey, why are you selling the watch? Like, I'm selling the watch because I'm selling the watch. You like, what do you what do you mean? Why am I selling it? If it was broken, I would have said it was a broken watch, you know. I'm selling it because I'm, I'm, I've had the experience of it and I've moved it on. But I actually think that the secondary market is a critical component of the watch industry because it, it's a constant flow of, of keeping the industry alive, not just because it provides I – mean, look, two things. One, not every watch collector is so stupid rich that they can just afford to continually collect and never divest. And this concept that some watch companies have that like you, I will only ever allocate watches to you if you don't sell them. I'm like, where do they think this money comes from? You know, and I think if we're honest about it and we just say like, I owned it, it was great. I had it for six months. I had it for a year. I sold it 98% of the time. You're going to lose money doing that. Every once in a while, you're going to have a really nice watch that appreciated. But if this was the market, you would be like the worst trader in the world, <laughs> but it's not, it's art. Mm-hmm. And by, by taking that, that if I put 10,000 into a watch and I enjoy it and it's amazing and I sell it for seven grand, I take that seven grand, I put it into another watch. All I'm doing is helping the watch industry. So I feel like there is this like weird bias and, and negativity towards buying and selling watches that we have to get over if we want to continually support the steady stream of novelties that we need the industry to, to provide to keep it vibrant. No, I agreed 100%. Obviously, I, I, obviously, I would agree. Sure. This is my industry, right? But but I mean, I, even if I wasn't, I, I totally, I, I like to be a realist about these things, right? So like, Obviously, you know, I've owned in my uh, whatever, in my eight or nine years of watch collecting, I've owned hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of dollars worth of watches. Right now, 
altogether, I certainly don't own anything near that, right? At, at, at one time, I have a lot of watches and I have watches from Seiko's and Seiko mods and I have Icapod and all sorts of weird watches that are not worth a damn dollar. Yeah. I oh. got original Icapod. And I, I don't know if you ever want to get like rid of that. I think it's going to go off the guy for, for, for new Icapods. <laughs> no, no, no. So, well, that, that was, that's, so this, this is the other thing, right? So, um, I don't personally, I don't buy watches, uh, it, again, personally, not, not through the company the company. I buy watches to make money with them. Right. But so, um, but personally I don't buy watches that I hope I, I buy, I, I don't buy them just hoping to make money on them. I buy them uh, a lot of times because I think they're going to be more expensive in the future. And if I don't buy it now, it's just going to cost me more money in the future. And I've been right about that quite a few times. Like I, like, so right now the most expensive watch I own, the most valuable watch I own is an AP that I, that is worth probably double what I paid just a little over a year ago. Right. And I, and I certainly wouldn't pay today's price for the watch. Now I, I would just have missed out on it. Right. So a lot of times that goes into my, into my, um, you know, thought process when purchasing a watch, but, um, am I going to sell that watch once it gets to a certain value? Yes. And, and that, see, that's the, this is the other side. So like I, I'm a, and I'm an optimist when it comes to a lot of things. Right. But, um, you know, I think it's all boats rise. I think that the, the amount of demand that's crashing into the watch world right now and Rolex is going crazy and paddocks and whatnot is actually a net positive across the board, even though you can go on Rolex forums and meet the guys who don't know the first, <laughs> they don't remember the first um, the rule of the internet, which is don't feed the trolls. And they've been feeding the trolls and the trolls are out of control. And now yeah. everybody's mad. Uh, you know, the internet's a bad, as a very angry place these days. But um, I, I would say that, um, you know, one thing that is truly uh, a negative is that, for example, today I I made a deal with a customer who bought a fifteen two hundred two for me probably five or six years ago. I think he paid about thirty grand for that watch, right? He did, wasn't really paying attention, and he was looking for a new watch. And all of a sudden, he sees that they're posted for over a hundred thousand. And now he sees, oh crap, I have a watch. He's a very wealthy guy, right? He could, I'm guessing, he can probably afford a watch like that if 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 he wanted to spend that kind of money on it. But he doesn't buy watches for a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That's not what he does. He doesn't want to wear a $100,000 watch. So what happened was he had a watch that he absolutely loved. He bought the watch, and now he realizes that it's a $100,000 watch, and it's basically soured him on I that watch. I get that. I mean, for, for me, I that's, – that's, that's a true negative, I think, in, in, in the watch market. Well, let me, let me offer a counterpoint to that, which is um, you know, there are a few pieces that I've owned which have allowed me, because of their skyrocketing appeal – to get into watches that I would not mm-hmm. have been able to afford otherwise. And a perfect example of that is the one that I'm wearing, right? I have thought about- What do you mean? You're not some sort of billionaire who can just buy an MB&F no, anytime you want? I'm paying my mortgage <laughs> like everybody else. Um, I, you know, I, so $65,000 was not something that I could rationally spend. I think it's worth every cent of it, don't get me wrong, but I don't have it to spend, you know? Sure. And I remember when I decided to buy this, I said goodbye to a watch that I bought that had, uh, uh, and, and I don't have many of these, I've got one or two, but this watch 5X'd. And, you know, it was right around the time, I beg your pardon? You're a flipper. Yeah, I'm a flipper. So you're a flipper. Yeah, that's me. You're I'm the, I'm the bad guy. Away. But I, I, you know, in this particular watch I'd owned for a few years and I, I remember looking at it and it was like, you know, my wife was, was going to, you know, was due with our son a couple months later. And I was like, I could keep this or I could sell it put so much in the college account and get the watch that I've idolized for 
however long for five, six years, you know, at retail, I can go buy it. I can go pay cash, you know? Yeah. Not so I twice. did it. I've never looked back, you know, and, and if the manufacturer, and in my mind, I'm like, if the manufacturer ever came to me and said, like, why did you do it? I could, first of all, like, that's a, that's a separate conversation about like asking that. But I think if we want to believe as collectors that like, we're on a journey, part of the journey is that some watches are stepping stones. Some, some watches never leave you. Some are an experience. Some are a mistake. You know, and that's, and that's part of it, right? I mean, I bought watches that were mistakes, not the right choice, you know, didn't turn out the way I wanted it to turn out. Like whatever it is, what it is. But Mm -hmm. the judgment that exists in, in the world right now, which I understand comes from a place of frustration, right? Because like, we all want to be able to say like, you should be able to walk into any paddock boutique and buy you know, well, 5196 is done now, but like a 6196 or whatever, right? Like you should be able to buy like a like okay. a basic yeah. Calatrava at any paddock AD. You should be able to buy a Black Bay 58 from any mm-hmm. Tudor dealer. You should be able to buy a sub from any Rolex dealer, right? Like these are the watches that we all think that like these are these are like the perfect ideal of watches from those dealer from those brands. You should be able to go buy them. You can't. I understand why that sours people. And I do understand why someone's like, I can't get one. They're twice as much online. Some jerk just sold it. Like it is what I like. I get it. I really, really, really get it. Yeah. But I, I think that the other side of that, and I, and I saw this myself and I got into another niche community during the pandemic. I got into knife collecting a little bit, which is like very, uh, which is a oh. beautiful. And, I, and the funny thing is like, I'm, you know, like <laughs> weaponry is like not my vibe, <laughs> but like, but what knives are art to me, you know? I'm seeing yeah. AR-15 right behind you there on the couch. But, but at the same time, <laughs> like I got really into it. There's a lot of crossover, you know, in those two worlds. And and I I had the experience of being a novice watch collector again where I'm like, why are all these people talking about? Oh, that, that that's cool. How do I get one? What do you mean I can't get one? Oh, I have to pay for that? Wait, what's a lottery? Right. But, you know, and it was like all this. Yeah. Stuff. But here's the thing. Yeah. If you just like in the in the knife world, it's true in the watch world. It's like it you can't get everything that you want all at once. And a lot of it is the journey. And the, and like, mm-hmm. I get the guy who's frustrated because he can't get the sub, but I guarantee you, you can, if, if you're patient, thoughtful and, and figure out the landscape and if it's not working with AD number one, it will work with AD number two over time and you'll get there, you know? Yeah. And sometimes you're never going to get that one, right? Like I never got a 57 11 when they were 20 grand, you know, it was never going to happen. Like, it just didn't happen. So I, I let it go and I moved on. Right. And I think, I think that, you know, in general, I get the frustration, but I also would encourage people who are, who might listen to this and they're like, ah, oh, screw this guy. Like, you know, what does he know? I, I would just say, if you can't get the watch that you want and you're interested from a watch collecting standpoint, it's not like I'm one and done. All I want is a sub and I'm move on with my life. If that's the case, I'm like, call Watchbox, buy a sub, move on with your life. You know what I mean? But if right. if it's yeah, not so if it's not that and you're just interested in watch collecting, that was just the first watch that like really got you, I would say that's okay, man. It got exactly. you. Let's keep looking and you might uncover other stuff. And that's why like recently I've been getting into brands that I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to before, but I'm now very much uh, attracted to like Gerard Pergo, Lucien Ardan, and um, even Arnold and Son. You know, where th- these are brands where it's like mm-hmm. have had a – I mean GP is having a well-deserved moment right now, but I would – you know, it's well-deserved, but it, it wasn't there before. And and I think 
if we allow ourselves the freedom to explore these other places and we think about what defines a good watch for us, we're going to find amazing things. And then the sub doesn't matter so much. Subs always going to be there. You'll get a sub at some point. It's going to happen. But these other pieces are really magical and they're right there. And I just, I hope that people take, well, I'll I'll add to that. Well, I'll add to that, that, that the sub might be the one you really want, but let's not pretend there's not a lot of parity in the watch market. So like if, if you just can't get the sub, right. And you're not, there's no chance to ever buy the sub. I mean, the Seamaster is sure is available, but you know, it's a fantastic watch. So like, no, no, sorry. sorry. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, people just like, if you can't get the Royal Oak, well, the Laureato exists and it might it's certainly be a, a different watch, one. I mean, right? and look, this like, is the thing that, that comes, I mean, I'm right. bringing it back to collective, but you know, part, part of the thing that I enjoy very much about collective is, you know, if you're a collective member, if we make a watch, you can, you can buy it, you know? And that's something that, that I really, that, that I take very, very seriously. That's why we try to make watches at different price points. We're working right now on our first two watches that are going to be under five grand, which is something that we've been working really, really hard to make oh. possible. You know, because I, I want people who are collective mm-hmm. members to to never feel like not just pressured to buy, but to also feel like, you know, if we release something and they like it, they can have it. And that's just like that. That's yeah. that's a very unusual thing in, in the watch world. And it's something that we work very hard to achieve. But at the same time, I also run a collective. We also run a pre-owned store on, on, our, on our website, you know, and, and we do that because I don't want collective members to feel embarrassed or ashamed if they're going to sell their watch. Because I also realize that, like, mm-hmm. if you bought the Moser and then you fell in love with the Urwerk, that sixty grand has to come from somewhere, you know. And and if if you want to sell your Moser and there's another guy out there who's excited about the Moser, why shouldn't that guy get it? You get the funds and the Urwerk, or 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 the, just the cash. Like that's okay too. You know, all, all this is doing is is helping. I mean, why? Yeah, I paid over retail for my Moser, and I was happy to do it. I felt. Like mm-hmm. the price seemed fair to me. I didn't care about the retail price and I, I knew how limited it was. And I'm like, listen, if I feel this way about this watch and this is the way I get, I'm sure other people get this way too. They get a bug in their, mm-hmm. up their butt about a certain watch. Right. And they might want to try to like start try to find the best price possible. But I'm thinking to myself, every minute that goes by, I can't be the only person who feels this way about this watch right now. So what if that guy has more money than I am or doesn't care as much about the price? And then now I'm negotiating with you or, you know, I'm hemming and hawing. And now yeah, it's, it's tough when you're talking about that something which only has like 52. Wait, wait. I mean, there's 50 examples and then there's the prototype, right? And, you know, so 51 examples, like the, that's it. So when, when oh, <laughs> you lied to me, no, no, we, we transparently <laughs> say, actually, actually, this is another thing. Uh, if you go to our website, we'll tell you exactly how many we produce. So like for the Urwork, there were 24, 20 to be sold, one for me, one for Gabe, okay. one for... Uh, Danny Goldsmith, who who retailed it for us, and one for uh, for the just the U.S. president of Urwerk, who, who who took the prototype. So so we're we're clear wow. that there's forty that there's twenty four out there. There's twenty that were sold, but twenty four out there. Right. Um. You know, but but I think when you're talking about a piece like that, you know, it's sometimes it you're never going to see it again. I mean, twenty watches, like, yeah. So that's that's one thing, right? Well, sure. or the fifty of the Mosers, especially at the price point. So, and that's. And that's one thing that I think that um, more seasoned watch collectors, which in the past that might have been somebody mm-hmm. who's collecting for fifteen or twenty years. Now it's like three mm-hmm. years. You're a, you're a, you're a seasoned watch collector because you can the market the market is liquid, which 
That's uh, mm-hmm. this is an upside of the market being so liquid. I can own a watch. I can have it for four months, get all the enjoyment that I'd ever need out of it, and then say, okay, I'm done with this. Let me and let me experience something else. So, experienced watch collectors are looking for real rarity as opposed to. And I'm not shitting on Rolex because I've had many Rolexes. I like the way they do. They they deliver exactly Absolutely. what they're supposed to deliver. But but there's no rarity. Not modern. Not watch. modern. And people Rolex. say, oh, that watch. They, that thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And well, you can listen to my last <laughs> podcast if you want to tell you about vintage Rolex. But um, but you know, when 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 someone says, oh, but Daytonas are so hard to get, I'm like, I don't know, man. There's 250 of them on Chrono 24. I mean, I don't. They're not hard to get. They're just hard to get for way under, way below market price you know, at the, yeah. re, at the MSRP. Um, so I, so this is where we're, we're way over time, but I, I want to do it. Sure. Can we do another 15 minutes at least? Cause this is a great conversation and we'll probably have to have another podcast too. Cause this is, we we have a lot to talk about, but so in the beginning I said that, you know, you've created a new sector of the watch market, right? So, um, the watch market has been, um, you know, there's boutiques. So mm-hmm. where the brands will sell direct authorized dealers, which kind of dominated mm-hmm. things, right? And um, and authorized dealers are drying up. I, I I believe ten years from now that it won't be a thing really. Maybe with Rolex and Paddock, just because that's what they've they've you know that's that's the what they've invested in, and things are fine with them that way. But um, I really believe most of the brands are going to be selling direct. You see it with AP now. You see it with uh, FP Journe, and there's a lot of brands that if they feel like they they can abandon the dealer um, uh, the authorized dealer uh, system, I think. They're going to because realistically, you know, it's not needed anymore. They don't need they don't need dealers to educate and they don't need Ooh, dealers no. to support okay. their so market, right? So if they can so scale I'm with you up until there. And I think that's actually okay. the like removing the pragmatic reality of, of a dealer being the like the point of sale, right? Like I made a thing, I need someone to sell it for me. Sure. A good AD, right? And I'm mm-hmm. talking about like people who are extraordinarily knowledgeable about what they're selling, right? So Tim Jackson had a passion fine jewelry, you know, Martin Pulley, Jeremy Oster, you know, Danny, uh, you know, at Goldsmith Complications, we need, you know, uh, uh, Liana Cellini, mm-hmm. you know, these are folk. I'm sorry. Still only handled. Still only sure. handled. I mean, but these are really great ADs, right? Um, yeah, these are the yeah. top. And, top and part of the reason best. why I would argue is is because they're not just selling something like they really understand what they're making, uh, what they're selling, and and, they, and and in many cases they took bets on these brands before they were huge, right? Leon, I think, brought was the first AD mm-hmm. for Longa in the nineties. So education is actually, I think, a, a critical component of of being a good authorized dealer. I think the challenge is that many people have been turned off and are looking for other alternatives. And this is why e-commerce is becoming a thing because I have had, and I'm sure many people have also had the experience of going into a watch store where the person behind the counter doesn't know anything about the watch that they're selling other than they want to sell it to you. And that's such an uncomfortable mm-hmm. experience that I think it, 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 ha- it put ADs in a really negative light. Whereas when you're, when you're talking about, you know, someone who who brought a brand in because they're personally passionate about it or excited about it, they're going to tell that story. And that story is what's going to help you eventually find the watch that you want from them. So I would argue it's it's not the death of the AD that's on the horizon. I would argue it's the death of the like, in, like l- lack of passion, multi, you know, like honestly, and like it's, I think Tourneau is in trouble. Well, Tourneau got is in trouble. They got bought by Bucherer. But like, I think Bucherer has a harder path ahead of them. 
frankly, than some of these mm-hmm. other spots, not because they don't provide access, they do, but because ultimately the modern watch collector is seeking community and passion and a story, not just inventory. We're excluding Daytonas, right? I mean, if someone right. buy a Daytona from whoever has a Daytona, like that's not a thing. But if you're right. walking into a store, exactly. and I remember this because I remember one of my close friends who's another incredible AD is Rob Kaplan from Topper Jewelers. And I remember uh, he, he was my Omega AD and still is. And I remember going into him years ago and like giving him a hard time about the, uh, the dark side of the moon. And he's like, ah, it was $12,000. And he listened to my little like completely uneducated rant. And he just took one out. And over the course of 15 minutes, he walked me through every component of why that watch is what it is, what makes it so special and why it's unique. Not, not rudely, not insulting me. he was just, he, but he shut me down completely and opened my eyes to what that watch was. And suddenly I was, I was, you know, I didn't have $12,000 at the time, but when I did, I bought it. So I think, and, and from him, and I, I think, I think the point is like, there is point, but I think we are going to see a thinning of the herd in that regard. Well, it's already started to happen. Yeah. It, well, so I agree with everything you said, but I have, but my counterpoint still remains that, that so that type of uh, of care and mm-hmm. level of education can be found on YouTube now. I don't have to leave my house. I can I can watch I can watch ten videos on YouTube and find out everything I need to know about that watch. And then at that point, the only thing that the authorized dealer has um, in terms of physical presence is no, the fact that I, well and relationship. But I can watch. I can like I've watched like every other watch guy. How many Tim Masso videos have I watched? Right. You know, like we all know the cadence of thanks for logging on, right? For putting it on and donning at bedside. You know what I mean? Like all of his various turns of phrase, I know. But um, I have no relationship with Tim, you know? And, and I think, sure, that's and, and were I to meet Tim, I would feel like I knew him and he wouldn't know me from Adam. So I think that, I think that's the distinction where, that's you know, whether we're, and I, th- and I think part of the nut to crack there is maintaining that individual, maintaining mm-hmm. that relationship and that level of service and that level of education at scale through e- uh, from an e-commerce standpoint. Like that's the nut to crack. Yeah, that's that that's a huge challenge. But I, I but again, so I, I see. So you and I have talked about this before too. Swiss watch industry has not always been. They, they have not really always been ahead of the curve in in the in the sense of marketing or distribution. Right, distribution's kind of been solved for them, in the sense of that the market is just madness like they can if almost every brand at this point could just sell all their watches on their on their website and they probably wouldn't see a dip in sales if not if it, if anything it would be more right this is my my, my thoughts right today um, that's probably so, true again this brings it back yeah and, and who in 10 years from now it probably mm-hmm. won't be but maybe it will who knows um but one last thing to, to bring it back to what you're doing with collective is you've created you're essentially curating the collections of your members, right? So like that, that really doesn't exist right now, right? So it's the opposite. So authorized dealers would make special editions, right? So toppers, jewelers, like you I have an SPB 107, right? I love the watch. I designed that. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> That's okay, awesome. Well, then there you go. <laughs> it's a great watch. It, it's, it's a tremendous watch. Uh, uh, and so, but so authorized dealers would make watches, but it wasn't like, Hey, I have 300 guys that want to buy a watch that I'm making now. It's let me make a watch and hopefully these guys will buy that watch. So you're right now with collective, it's the opposite. 
you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're looking at it from a different angle, which I really appreciate, right? So you're like, hey, I have this exclusive group of guys that I know are vetted in our actual watch guys, right? These are guys that that I want to talk watches with essentially, right? Because you have an application process, which by the way, this is my application right now. Yeah, I don't know if you're noticing this. But <laughs> so, um, but like, th- this is how I'm looking at your business model, right? So, hey, I want to create a group of people that I want to talk watches with. If I don't want to talk watches with you, thank you for the application, but you know, you know, have fun, right? This is, again, th- this is my view of things from the outside. This is not what, just not putting words in your mouth. But so you've created this, and now, and you also have created a, so in doing so, you've created a, a business model that allows you now to curate watches directly for this group of guys that you are, or guys and girls, I guess, but I'm sure there's women in, in a group, um, but a group of people who, uh, who you are, um, mm-hmm. you're in direct connection with. So you, you know, it's not, it's, this is not like, Hey, I hope these guys like this watch. It's all right. Let me let me speak the language of, of my collector group. Let me go to this brand and say, hey, this is what my guys are going to want. These are all what we're going to make as many as we we're going to sell as many as we make. So there's so there's less of a um, a little less of a of uh, a risk there. I mean, obviously, there's always a risk regardless, but there there's slightly less of a risk, and it's a different way to approach the market. And I can see other people doing what you're doing right now, right? Like it's. Like it makes sense to me and I can see large, like there, there could be five, 10, 20 groups similar to collective all with maybe different leadership, right? Cause you're essentially the leader of collective and people who are speaking a different language, right? So you and I, I feel like are very similar, even though we've disagreed a, a bunch of times during here, like, I think we agree on a lot of things and I would, and, and the fact is obviously like I'm, yeah. I did spend money on something that you <laughs> designed, right? Twice now that I, I didn't realize, so, but so, you know, if, if my application for a collective gets uh, approved, I'm happy to buy the next watch that you design. So I, I think this is a, this is, this could replace in some ways the authorized dealers. Well, um, I, I, I think right? Because we, you can't replace the fact that, that a company needs yeah. to build, maintain and have, and should have stock model watches. But I, I do believe that you're correct, mm-hmm. that there are alternative channels for sales and, Part of what I think is exciting about about the way Collective is set up, and I mean, you could say this about some other folks that that are in the collaborative space too, for sure, is mm-hmm. it ultimately allows you to, to to hopefully open people's eyes to something they may not have looked at before, you know, uh, either a brand they hadn't considered right. or a, a design that hadn't necessarily crossed their radar. You know, and, there, and there's a watch that we're making in November, for example. Um, we have a release before that, but there's one coming around November-ish that, um, you know, is it, a is a maker that I cannot express how excited I am to be in business with them because I feel – yeah, no. Is it rolling? Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, but, but because Sorry. I think people – when people open their eyes to what this watchmaker is is making – they they won't be able to to walk away from it because it's so incredible it, from from a from a, a design creativity aesthetic finishing and, and value standpoint and you know of course there's risk involved in that but I, I believe so strongly in that brand and in that maker that I'm proud to like order the maximum number of watches that I can from them and so that to me. Is like the evolution of the AD model because, uh, frankly, if you think about what ADs were doing twenty or thirty years ago, that's what they were doing. 
right? They were going to Basel and there was like the big stuff yeah. up front. And then they're going to talk to the guy in the back. Right. You know, and the, yeah. And they're like, Oh, Discovering man, step on Sarpaneva. What's going on here? You know? And, and the thing is mm-hmm. like Sarpaneva is a pretty big name now, but he, he wasn't always. And, and part of that, Oh yeah. You know, part of that were, oh, were the no. dealers in the beginning who were like, what in the fuck is this? And, and we're like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And decided to put their money where their mouth was yeah. and, and support a guy like him. And yeah, Mike totally. Mann just talked about that. Yeah. Like, cause he was there. Yeah. yeah he was, so, he was the guy in the small way that we do it. You know, I, I'm exceedingly proud to say like, you know what? I'll sign this contract. This is awesome. I'm in. And, and I'm confident that we'll sell them because I'm confident that we'll find the guys and the gals who are excited about what you're doing after we tell the story together. But I'm still going to put my money where my mouth is and say, I'm in, right? Like, it's like back when I used to work in television, like it ain't that hard to make a marketing campaign for Star Wars. You know what I mean? It's not that hard to sell a bunch of Rolexes. I don't mean that indefensively. They're great watches. That's why they're easy to sell, right? It's not hard to convince someone to go see Star Wars. Yeah. It's just not. Telling someone about that new indie film that's off the corner and you got to, you know, it's like a whole thing. Eh, it's like a lot harder. So I think it's the same thing with, with us where ultimately what my dream for collective is that we keep finding people with open minds who aren't waiting for me to do the AP collab that's never coming. And I love AP, you know, they're great folks. <laughs> like that's not going to happen. Francois not taking your call or, yeah, or you're not it's calling. It's not going to happen, you know, because they don't need, they don't need to do it. It's like, it's not going to happen, yeah. but that's okay. Cause there's hundreds of other watchmakers out there doing incredible work, you know, and we can all enjoy the APs that we have if we can get them. But that doesn't mean that there isn't beauty to, to, be, to be had in, in, in the corner of Basil or Watches and Wonders or whatever. And when you find those folks and you tell that story, I mean, and I'll end it with this, man. I mean, if you go back to the prototype of the UR-103, I mean, that thing was held together with like bailing time, bailing yeah. twine, spit and duct tape. I mean, literally the indices, like go back and read Stephen Pulverin's article about this in Hodinkee a couple years ago. The indices were painted with nail polish. You know, I mean, they were literally selling a dream, <laughs> you know, and, 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 People wow. believed in them. God bless them. And because they did, we have the 112 today. And we wouldn't have that. Yeah. So, so and, a bunch, and a bunch of guys who are making $2,000, $3,000 wandering hour complications that are inspired because there's a market for it where you wouldn't have been able to get near that anyway. So I hope in summary that as we look at these new sales models, that with the, that the AD model might reinvent itself in terms of like cha- in terms of channels and scale and scope. But I don't yeah. want it to go away because if we if we if the AD model goes away. Yeah, sure. You're right. Like, can Zenith sell direct? Totally. Hublot? Totally. Like, Rolex, Paddock, whatever? Absolutely. But can Watchmaker, who's 22 years old, sell direct? Mm-hmm. No. Probably not. Because that presupposes okay, that that person enough. is not just an excellent watchmaker, but that they're also a capable marketer. And that's not fair. I agree with that. And uh, and I and on that note, this is the <laughs> longest podcast I've ever done. And honestly, I could go for another hour, but you have you have kids in your house. I gotta leave here. Like literally, the the, the cleaning crew just opened the door, and that's if anybody heard that. If you're listening this <laughs> this late into the podcast, number one, Amen. you're a champion, and we love you. Number two, sorry about it's that. Okay. The creaky thought, door was uh, was the too. cleaning crew who like walked in on me. Jeez. Oh, okay. All right. Well, listen, man. This was an absolute pleasure. I really, really appreciate your time today. Um. Can you With promise pleasure. me that we'll be able to do this again? Because there's more to talk about. Okay, sweet, man. Well, how about this? When I get my, my Moser <laughs> back from service, uh, we'll talk it. again with it on my wrist and we'll have- Thank we'll you have for the invitation. It's, it's, it's been a joy. All right, well, no problem.
Absolutely, Asher. So sure. um, tell people how they can get uh, hold of you. You can always reach us at Collective Horology on Instagram. Um, you can find us online at collectivehorology.com, which is also where our pre-owned shop is. And uh, any direct questions from me, you're welcome to email me at asher at collectivehorology.com. Sweet. Awesome. And guys, like always, you can email me, jthanos at thewatchbox.com. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast. It helps uh, me get uh, guests and uh, makes me look good to my bosses at Watchbox. Um, and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channels, watch Tim's videos, and uh, we love you. Goodbye.